From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, orthokeratology. The FDA panel actually did not advise it being used under age 18. First this. If time and money were no object, you'd probably go to a lot of meetings. Not just ASCRS, but ESCRS, APACRS, AAO, Hawaiian Eye, and Winter Update, and you'd learn a ton. But money is an issue, and time an even bigger one. That's why I go to all of those meetings for you. Speak with the presenters you'd like best, and get them to distill their talks down to just a few minutes. You can see all of these interviews at no cost at the iWorld Replay website. Just go to ewreplay.org, E-W-R-E-P-L-A-Y.org, and enjoy. There is a non-surgical process by which myopia can be corrected. But just because orthokeratology is non-surgical, it does not mean that it is risk-free. And these risks are especially important because young children represent a large market for ortho-K. Ira Udell and Tim Steineman have just published an editorial on ortho-K in the AJO, and I'm happy to have them as my guests today. Ira, Tim, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Let let me ask you first, we're going to be talking about orthokeratology. How does orthokeratology work? What what is it and and how is it purported to, to work? Well, Tim, I guess I'll take that uh, first. So uh, the way it works is basically to apply a rigid gas permeable reverse geometry lens uh, during the evening or night hours. Um, And the way it works uh, mechanistically is to thin or flatten the central epithelium. Uh, The more mid-peripheral epithelium gets somewhat thickened. And uh, so essentially you're flattening the corneal surface and achieving the, and winding up with the effect of uh, reducing myopic uh, correction or producing a myopic correction. So when you say a reverse geometry lens, what, what you mean is uh, one that's, that's flatter centrally? Mm-hmm. So, so it's funny, when I, prior to, to reading uh, this, this article and reading a little bit more background about Orthokeratology. I I had assumed the way that it worked was by by molding the cornea and by transiently changing the shape of of stroma. But that's that's not how it works, Ira. Right. That it's been now shown in a number of papers that uh, the mechanism is really epithelial. So how quickly do patients see results, and when does the efficacy max out? So uh, you can see results fairly quickly, uh, certainly within uh, days and then within a week. uh, And within one month, you'll see uh, pretty much the full effect. Uh, The nice thing about it is, uh, I guess you can say nice and not so nice, is that uh, when you discontinue the lens, uh, fairly quickly after, the effect will be lost. So depending on the patient, it might be within days, but certainly within a week or a little bit longer, you can pretty much go back to baseline. For how long is the effect maintained after the patient discontinues contact lens wear? Tim, you want to take that one? Um, Well, I don't think that we really know uh, exactly how long it's maintained, but it certainly is a transient effect. 
If you look at studies of people that are wearing the overnight lenses just for a daily treatment of myopia, uh, typically that effect uh, requires a continued application of the lenses overnight. So that if you're not wearing the lens every single night, you're maybe wearing the lens every other night, uh, so-called retainer lenses to try to maintain the effect on the cornea. How large uh, are the refractive changes that can be obtained by orthokeratology? And is the correction limited to spherical errors or, or can astigmatism be corrected too? Um, the uh, studies were, were treated in a, in a prospective uh, trial. Uh, there are a couple of trials uh, conducted prospectively through the Food and Drug Administration. And so the treatment effects for up to five, maybe six diopters of myopia uh, were approved by the Food and Drug Administration, and uh, a diopter, or maybe a diopter and a half of astigmatism was also approved. Uh, so uh, those are the, the treatment parameters. Uh, how multifocal are, are these corneas? And, and, and what I mean is, is this. I mean, clearly, the, the flattening is, is not something that's going to be uniform. They, even if they start out with spherical corneas, myopic spherical corneas, they're not going to wind up spherical after uh, this, this sort of contact lens wear. Are the patients simply treating refractive correction for higher order aberrations that are, are induced by these, these non-spherical changes? Well, Josh, I think there's no question that uh, when you apply a rigid lens to the cornea, I mean, any, any rigid lens, particularly if it's coming in contact with the cornea, is probably going to induce some higher-order aberration. And uh, therefore, you're going to end up with some spherical aberration and some changes in the quality of vision. Uh, and there's no question that that's been studied uh, extensively uh, in, in, in uh, orthokeratology over the years. So there's no question that uh, higher-order aberrations are induced, but some patients in the short term end up with uh, some glare, with some halos, with some reduction in low-contrast vision. I think that that uh, has been also compared with refractive surgery, that same types of changes that one might expect by uh, refractive surgery you're going to induce with a rigid lens against the cornea. But patients typically uh, adapt uh, to these higher-order aberrations. And so uh, typically over a matter of a few weeks, uh, patients adapt to the, the glare and the halos. I think it's also important to mention that, again, once the lenses are discontinued, then that effect uh, seems to, to normalize as well. Yeah, I just want to add that there was an interesting paper that uh, we quoted in the AJO in 2008 looking at mesopic contrast sensitivity and higher-order aberration. And one of the comments in the discussion was that nearly two-thirds of the eyes undergoing ortho-K did not qualify for night driving in their study yeah. based on the mesopic aberrations. Um, so, and they said it was quite similar to what they found in PRK with five millimeter ablation diameter. So it's not something that we really talk about so much. It's, you know, it, it's really interesting that as we did our research, we found this, but it's not one of those areas that's being talked about very much. Up until this, this point, the conversation has been relatively straightforward and I, 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 I need to shift gears here. But let me, the, the, the studies that you've discussed have been on, on grown-ups. 
What is the typical age of an orthokeratology patient? You know, I think, uh, Josh, that uh, we have to kind of divide it up into what is uh, approved and and what is being used off-label. For approved orthokeratology, the the lenses are approved and were, were, were tested primarily in adults. And so this is for the treatment of myopic refractive errors uh, in adults. And um, in the pre-market uh, assessment, the couple of the pre-market studies conducted through the Food and Drug Administration, there were only a small number of adolescents that were tested and that were studied in those uh, in, in one study. In one study, there there were perhaps ten or twelve adolescents that were tested with orthokeratology lenses. The other study, both both studies had a cohort of about two hundred uh, subjects. So there were ten or twelve adolescents in one study, and there were no uh, subjects under the age of eighteen in the other study. So the approvable and approved uses of orthokeratology were largely done on adults. However, I think it's important to mention that there is an off-label use. So you have an approved use and you have an off-label use. The off-label use, the intense interest uh, in orthokeratology uh, is in off-label uses in children. Uh, How so? Well, that is in uh, the application of the lenses uh, for the prevention of myopic progression in children. So I think it's important to mention that uh, we have both an approved use and an off-label use. From what I understand, it's it's even more more than that. It's not just that the use in children, uh, and I'm not talking adolescents. I'm talking children here. It, it, it's not just that it's an off-label use. Well, let let me pose this as a as a question. Since children are such a large potential market, such a large actual market for orthokeratology, how extensively has the pediatric population been studied for this this procedure? There are a number of studies which attempt to gauge the efficacy of orthokeratology lenses in preventing myopic progression in children. The problem of those studies uh, is is multiple. Um, The studies are plagued by design problems. The studies are plagued by real-world problems and any problems that you might expect that involve studying children and studying them um, prospectively, studying them in a randomized fashion, and studying them and and attempting to maintain a cohort and maintain uh, the subjects in the study without dropout. And that's that's been a major problem in a lot of the studies that I've reviewed. So you have small cohorts. uh, Sometimes the data sets, the cohorts are not balanced and uh, multiple different ways of studying the effect of the orthokeratology compared to the uh, control, which can be glasses or maybe soft lenses or sometimes uh, single-vision hard lenses, um, sometimes uh, more recently even dual-focus lenses. Um, and then you have the whole question about other methods of uh, preventing myopic progression in children, which includes some pharmacologic and and optical uh, methods. 
So I think the answer is, in my mind, is not, it's not in. We don't have an answer, uh, a clear answer for preventing myopic progression in children. Um, some of these studies, as I said, are small cohorts, and uh, although some of the studies are intriguing, uh, and some of the studies show a reduction of axial myopia by anywhere from 30 to 60 percent with the use of orthokeratology lenses, um, I think that, that the numbers, again, still um, beg for uh, corroboration and support with a larger prospect of randomized uh, study. And I think, Ira, I think you uh, looked at that extensively in, in uh, on a, a mega review a few years ago with the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Right. Just to amplify on, on what Tim has said, um, the FDA panel actually did not advise it being used under age 18. And despite that, the FDA decided to approve it without restrictions. Now, the caveat to that was that they did mandate that there is a specific training for practitioners who uh, fit these kinds of lenses, which, to my knowledge, was the first time with any contact lens that there was a mandatory training with a testing that was required. Um, and then to the question of what's the population, how many kids are potentially going to be fit, we don't know the answer, but we know that there's quite a difference between the population of myopes, let's say, in the United States and, for instance, uh, Asia. Uh, I think probably in the United States we're looking at maybe 28-30% of the population is myopic, whereas in Singapore and other areas of Asia it's estimated to be up to 85-90%. to 90%. So as we look at this data, we have to really look at you know where the populations are primarily being fit. But another paper estimated that it's somewhere in this this age group of uh, potential patients is somewhere about 30% of the population if you look at everything overall. It's important when we talk about procedures, which, which this is, uh, to talk about risk and, and particularly when we're dealing with, with children. But I want to say my next couple questions do not deal with, with the risk. They deal with the morphological changes that, that, are, mm. that are actually seen. So in addition to producing central epithelial thinning, does orthokeratography affect the morphology of the cells? So there's epithelial morphology change uh, that's been recognized but reversible. Um, with thinning, there, and there have been some animal studies showing that the, the presumption is that with thinning and changes in the apical cells that there is a greater susceptibility, for instance, to pseudomonas adhesion and that might uh, lead to a greater susceptibility to infection. Now, that's animal studies. There's no human data that I'm aware of. As far as the stroma, there is no data to show any changes in the stroma. Uh, also, endothelium, there have been no changes, at least short-term, in the endothelium. However, I found one paper that at one year showed <coughs> polymegathism that did not change uh, when the lenses were stopped. However, we need to be aware of there have been there has been data in the past about the use of contact lenses in association with polymegathism. So that's probably not a really new finding just related to this particular type of lens. The primary risk that we're concerned with with contact lens wearers generally is infectious keratitis. And this is something that, that takes on a, 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 an, an especially significant 
meaning when we're dealing with patients in an amblyogenic age group, uh, what what are the the the, concern, the specific concerns with ortho K uh, with these patients? Well, I think you know the concerns are obviously that we do any permanent damage to a young uh, a young group of patients in which if you leave them with a deficit, uh, you may potentially need to do a corneal transplant. So obviously that's that's the worst scenario. We don't want to get there. Um, I think Oliver Shine pointed out in an editorial in uh, the journal Cornea, I think it was in 2005, in which there were a whole series of uh, reports of corneal ulceration or microbial keratitis from various areas around the world, that most of these cases turn out to be from severe organisms such as Pseudomonas and Acanthamoeba. Some of them are bilateral. Um, they tend to be central. And they tend to be occurring worldwide. They're not just, you know, in one pocket or one one area. And from uh, from various types of practitioners reporting it, the real problem is we don't really know what the true incidence is. We don't know the real N number. Um, we don't hear much about it. Um, you know, I've actually proposed to our own pediatric people in our department that they uh, send out a survey to all the pediatric ophthalmologists in the country and try to see if we can get a sense of just anecdotally what they've seen, because much of the data that we've seen up to now has come from uh, primarily from optometric journals, um, and then the complications as far as uh, ulcers tend to come from ophthalmologists. Sure. And so we don't really know exactly what's going on, and I think it's an important thing to better understand whether this is a safe, long-term procedure or whether we need to be more concerned about its potential dangers long-term. The assertion has, has been made in several optometric papers that the peripheral retina, or at least the mid-peripheral retina, is an important area for emetropization of the growing eye and that intentionally creating mid-peripheral defocus, that's to say fogging the mid-peripheral retina, can slow progression of axial myopia. Have these assertions been borne out? Tim, you want to handle um, that? Yeah, I think that uh, that's still a controversial theory. Um, that's been uh, proposed um, and uh, has been extensively studied both in chicks and in monkeys. And the so-called peripheral hyperopic defocus factor in the promotion of axial elongation or axial myopia. Um, I don't think that there is 100% agreement that that theory is, 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 is true. Um, and so you have some disagreement. And also when looking at uh, populations of, of uh, children around the world, there is some disagreement whether peripheral hyperopic defocus is a driving force or is it, or is it just a concomitant uh, seen, observed in axial myopia. In short, I, I don't think that there is firm agreement that, that peripheral hyperopic defocus uh, is the driving force in, in what is producing axial myopia in children. Ira, Tim, I, 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 I'm going to sort of lay my, my cards on the, on the table here. I suspect that my apprehension, as, you know, as a cornea-trained guy, that my apprehension about overnight contact lens wear is shared by, by you. Therefore, it, it's difficult for me to view orthokeratography dispassionately 
if I don't even like my patients sleeping in, in soft contact lenses. Having said this, how much concern do you have about kids sleeping in RGPs? So uh, I think both of us should weigh in, but I certainly feel the same sense of concern that you're expressing. Um, I have a problem with any overnight wear, whether it's RGPs or softs or silicone hydrogels. I think we all know from our own personal experience, and the longer you practice, the more you see this, that uh, even single overnight is a high risk factor. And uh, in this in this young age group, I'm particularly concerned. So I have to say that that's an individual concern. I think Tim will say the same. We both don't fit this lens within our practice. But having said that, there are people like Bruce Koffler who wrote the paper in the AJO that I, we did the editorial uh, to, um, who is an excellent uh, ophthalmologist, cornea-trained specialist who really believes in this. And I, and I say that not, not in the sense of a religious thing, but I think he believes that that it is a good procedure when patients are properly evaluated, properly followed, that it is a safe and effective procedure. And I think if we say that, you know, we've anecdotally seen problems, um, I think we have to, you know, keep in mind that there are people out there that we respect that have had excellent experience with the procedure. I agree, Ira. Um, I think that, that, uh, there are, are many people that I, I think are trying to look at this dispassionately, and I think it is an intriguing theory, but ultimately we have to ask the question, you know, what, you know, what benefit at what, at what cost or what risk? And uh, as a cornea specialist, no, I'm not in favor of anybody, particularly children, sleeping in contact lenses. But, um, you know, part of the other concern I have is that it, does the data really show that it can prevent myopic progression in a child? And part of the problem that I have with some of the studies that are out there is that, again, the, the studies are plagued by design, but they're plagued by practicality, and that is that it's hard to keep children enrolled in a study, keep, it, keep them from dropping out. And most of these studies have a small cohort of maybe 20 or 30 subjects, and they followed them for maybe two years. And... Uh, my question is, if you use the lenses for two or three years, you might see an effect, but does that uh, effect, is that effect long-lasting? Or does, if you, if you drop out of lens wear, does, does, that, uh, does the myopia catch up or does the eye revert back to its normal shape? And furthermore, is there a, is there a specific time period for the development of axial myopia? I mean, maybe we should address you know, asking the question, is there, is there a golden time or a golden opportunity that we can apply these lenses? I don't think we know that. Most of the studies that were out there were not done with crossover design. They were not done with internal controls. They were, they were not done with a washout period. So we don't really know the effect of the lenses. We don't know the effect of the lenses, you know, within subjects. Um, there's just a lot that we don't know about these lenses. And, uh, it would seem to me that if you're going to get a long-lasting effect or, or the best study, you would have to apply a lens to a child at a young age and follow them for years, applying the lenses nightly for a continued effect. And that effect, of course, just continues the risk of a nightly application of a piece of plastic sitting in the eye in a, in a warm, moist environment. The, the, the studies are intriguing, but I, 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 at this point I just strongly believe that we are 
I'm still looking for the perfect study. <laughs> um, the only thing I'll add, and uh, I'm not sure that you know this is necessarily relevant to the discussion, but I spoke to one of my optometrists today and, and just wanted to get a sense within optometry uh, and she doesn't fit the lenses, you know, how passionate people are. And I got the sense that there, that there isn't a great passion. There is a certain subset of individuals within optometry who, who really, you know, cling on to this procedure and it's a big part of what they do. But I think for most optometrists, they don't see this as a major part of what they do and what they think is, uh, you know, their mainstay of, of day-to-day care for patients. I just may, may mention that Ira, that that may be a uh, a way of looking at it here in the United States, but in um, perhaps in other areas of the world, maybe in the Pacific Rim countries where high myopia is epidemic, if you will, you might get a, a different view of things. Right, and I, and I and I would say when I say that as a generality, there are certain pockets, even in New York, of uh, areas that I'm aware of in which. The incidence of orthokeratology is very, very high, um, and areas even close by to where we are. Um, and uh, so it's a generality, but in, certainly in certain communities, it uh, has a very high impact. Probably worth mentioning that, I mean, and I alluded to this, I mean, obviously neither he nor I uh, fit these lenses, and, uh, you know, I mean, for balance, we... we <laughs> We, we really have kind of pre- presented maybe kind of a negative side to it, but, uh, you know, obviously there are people that, as he mentioned, that really do believe in, in, the, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the strength or the power of these studies. And I, I just, I, I guess I would just say that I'm, 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 I'm open-minded enough to accept it, but I think that there still needs to be some better data presented. I think that we're, we're just cautious and, and kind of scared of, of proceeding with something like this in children. Interesting stuff. Tim, Ira, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Josh. Ira Udell is chairman of the Department of Ophthalmology at the North Shore Long Island Jewish Health System in Great Neck, New York. Thomas Steinemann is professor of ophthalmology at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Their paper, Orthokeratology, Does It Live Up to Expectations?, appears in the December 2013 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Udell, Dr. Steinemann, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.